We do have, we're not going to have fellowship time after church today, but there is a bunch of uh, bread I saw on the tables down there from Panera. If you'd like to get your daily bread after the daily bread here, um, it is downstairs. I'm sure that Ryan and Crystal would appreciate some of that disappearing. Also, the women's retreat for the ladies, that information is in the bulletin, and you'll have to go there and sign up for the retreat on your own, but that information is found there in the bulletin. Um, We are looking at doing a baptismal service, or maybe more than one service. We'll figure it out. It's not, Lily was challenging me in the day of COVID, do you keep the same people getting in the same water, or do you refresh it and all this? And it's like, I don't know. Never had to do or answer questions like this before. That's a good one. So anyways, um, I have found a portable system, baptismal system. I think it'll work well for us at a reasonable cost. Um, and we'll just set ourselves up that we can be able to have baptismal services uh, when needed here in the church property. And so on Monday, I'll be looking to uh, finalize that purchase. I've tried to borrow rent in the area and uh, not too many churches have them. So we're kind of, the need is unique. So anyways, keep that in your prayers that the Lord would guide us in that. I do know of at least three who want to be baptized uh, right now. So we are encouraged with that. For those who are here, I'll leave the rest of the announcements for you to read in your bulletins. And I'll take some of the primary announcements um, and we'll post them through our Facebook page for those who are maybe listening online or would like or watching uh, through social media we'll make that information available to you as well and you can kind of have the mobile bulletin this week and so we'll do that for you Kevin remind me he's back there somewhere to do that all right today we're looking at Revelation chapter 11 Revelation chapter 11. We're looking at the two witnesses. And again, I'll just kind of back up my view on the book of Revelation that we're looking at. John was instructed by Jesus to write those things which you have seen, which are, and which will be after this. And so the things which you have seen refers to chapter 1 and the glorified body of Jesus Christ, the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, the present church that were addressed in the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3, and then the things which will take place after this, referring to still a coming day in the end-time events. And we're looking at the two witnesses that will be in Jerusalem, in the streets of Jerusalem, testifying before the people for three and a half years, the second half of what the Bible describes as the tribulation period of seven years for three and a half years. God will have, he said, my two witnesses will be there proclaiming the gospel. And so I'll remind us where we're at in the book of Revelation. We're at an in-between point. Once again, we're in between the sounding of the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And that takes us from Revelation chapter 10 to Revelation 11 through verse 14. And then in verse 15, we'll find the seventh trumpet being sounded. 
And really the seventh trumpet, uh, not only as we'll read about today, introduces the time of worship in heaven, but it goes to the seven bold judgments. So the uh, seventh trumpet actually rolls into seven more judgments, and that will be the end, the final judgments of the Lord, all contained within the seventh trumpet or the third woe, as we'll look at in our text today. So we're kind of in this parenthetical section between the sixth and the seventh trumpet sounding, where John is shown uh, the two witnesses that will be here on the earth, where all the world will see. And I believe even as we read this text, we understand that for all the world to see the events, well, the description that John gives us of some of these things fits perfectly in the 21st century that we live in. It would not have fit as well in John's day when he wrote these things. So once again, I believe in the literal interpretation of the book of Revelation and that we are looking at events that are still prophesied yet to come. And today we're going to see a message that I entitled Two Witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. We're first going to see a a temple survey in verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 through 6, we have the ministry of the two witnesses. 7 through 14, the death of the two witnesses. 15 through 19, the seventh trumpet sounds and also the third woe. They are one and the same. So I'll go ahead and read verses 1 and 2 and open us in prayer. So a temple survey, verses 1 and 2, it says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And so, Father, we've just prayed your inspiration of your Holy Spirit to be upon us as we look into your word this morning. Lord, we do truly want to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, to this church this day. Lord, you have a word for us. I pray that you would speak through me today and that through this text or maybe commentary about the scripture that we're looking at, or maybe, Lord, you take us down a little rabbit trail. I pray that all of it would be inspired of you this morning that we would learn of you, know of you, anticipate, Lord, your second coming, and looking forward, Lord, to one day being united with you in all eternity. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So John is given a measuring rod. A measuring rod, I guess we could best describe, and we hardly see these anymore, but a yardstick. I mean, they used to give away yardsticks when I was a kid, And so we had them around the house. A measuring rod was a bit longer. It was uh, six cubits. A cubit is considered the measurement from a man's elbow to the tip of his middle finger. About mine is about 19 inches. I've measured it. It's weird, I know, but you know, I kind of place it in the Bible. It's like, how would I fit in here? But the average, 18 inches. So this rod would be something like 108 inches or nine feet long that John was given, instructed to rise, to measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there, but to leave the outer courts. And so he was instructed to 
measure the court of the priests, the court of Israel, but not the court of the Gentiles. He was to leave that alone, but to measure the temple itself. And being instructed by Jesus to measure the temple tells us that there is going to be a third temple built that one would be able to measure. Right now, there is no temple in Jerusalem. There hasn't been since it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. There is a temple mount. It is controlled by Islam right now. Jordan given control over that area. But there is a temple mount. No temple upon that temple. We also know that there is the Dome of the Rock on top of Temple Mount. has nothing to do with the faith of Israel and or Christianity. has everything to do with Islam. And so there's a battle for this territory. And so the second temple had been destroyed, and as I said, in 70 AD. And yet the Jews have dreamed of the rebuilding of a temple. The scripture actually prophesies, both in the Old and New Testament, of another temple coming. And with the advent of the state of Israel on May 14th in 1948, becoming a nation once again, and then the capture of Jerusalem from Jordan in 1967, the dream of the rebuilding of the temple has been revived. In fact, there has been in 1987, the Temple Institute there in Israel has been formed. They have studied extensively everything they could learn from not only from uh, the Old Testament scriptures, which would be the Hebrew Bible to them. They don't have the New Testament, but also the history and the Torah and other writings of the Jews to learn everything they could possibly learn about the first and the second temples and the construction of them and also the... um, Worship, how worship was laid out, the instruments that they would need for worship, the duties of the priest and that of the singers, everything that they could possibly need. The Temple Institute has studied these things. They are doing so in preparation for the third temple. They've already made all the instruments needed for worship. The menorah right now stands in Jerusalem. We visited Jerusalem And uh, although there is no temple for the menorah to be there, it is in a glass box in the old city underneath this passageway where you can walk and see the menorah that they have developed. And I got to tell you, it's probably about seven or eight feet tall, if not taller than that, pretty large menorah. They have everything necessary, the priestly garments, the instruments that they would need. All they're waiting is permission to build. And so talking about the reviving of another temple, the third temple, there are many toward the end of last year, the Abraham Accords began to show that peace is possible in the Middle East as Muslim countries began to sign this peace agreement with the nation of Israel. It was beginning to unfold. In fact, some of those countries were actually saying it's okay if the Jews have a temple in Israel. Jerusalem. And so there was a spirit of change beginning to take place. I believe much of that has been retracted over the last course of this year, but change is possible. We see it even with the Abraham Accords 
that there is a possibility for peace and the allowance of a Jewish temple to be built. But why the delay? Well, Paul tells us a bit about the delay itself. In Romans 11, 25 through 27, he says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. He calls it a mystery. He says, Lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, so that all Israel should be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. At this time, the time of the Gentiles, uh, the gospel is being proclaimed to the whole world. At this time, blindness in part has happened to Israel. The nation of Israel today is largely a secular nation. They truly don't believe in God. They are largely a secular nation that carries the name of God over their nation, but they are not truly believers, and many of them not believers in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So the command, he says, leave out the outer courts, and it'll be overrun by the Gentiles for 42 months. Specifically, he says, 42 months, three and a half years, the second half of the tribulation. Beginning at that time, the Antichrist, who will make a covenant of peace with the nation of Israel, allowing them to build their temple, he will break that covenant of peace with Israel and will cause what Jesus called in Mark 13, 14, the abomination of desolation. He will set up himself as God in the temple of God to be worshipped as God upon this earth. The Antichrist will then turn his attention to the genocide of the Jewish people. During that time, they will be, and we'll learn about this in Revelation chapter 12, God will protect the Jewish people. But the thing I want us to notice in verses 1 and 2, by the survey of this temple, it tells us that a third temple will be built. And we even hear about plans today about a building of a third temple. We next notice in verses 3 through 6, the ministry of the two witnesses. I'll read the context for us. It says, For I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire will proceed from their mouths and devour their enemies. And if anybody wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut the heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. They have power over waters to turn them to blood, to strike the earth with all the plagues as often as they desire. Well, it sounds like it's going to be a pretty horrific time with the two witnesses coming. But the Bible teaches us this, and this is what I was thinking about the two witnesses. The Bible tells us that one witness is not sufficient to condemn a man. One witness is not sufficient to condemn anyone. According to Deuteronomy 17.6, whoever is deserving of death 
shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Jesus, again, repeating this in Matthew 18, 16, saying that if they will not hear, take with you one or two more by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Every word may be established. And I believe God in the end times will set his two witnesses because he is bringing judgment, because he is bringing condemnation upon this world. He will give two witnesses three and a half years to give testimony of the truth of God's word. In order that the world cannot, when they are being judged before God Almighty, they cannot say that we didn't know. And the Lord will say, yeah, I had my two witnesses there and all the world saw them. Two witnesses that will be clothed in sackcloth. It's a sign of weeping and mourning, according to scripture. As in Isaiah 22:12, it says, in that day, the Lord God of hosts calls for weeping and mourning, baldness and the girding with sackcloth. This will be their clothing at that time. In face of impending death, at a time when the Lord God called his people to repentance in Isaiah's day, he called for them to put on weeping and mourning, baldness and sackcloth. But instead, we find in the day of Isaiah that Israel partied. They partied like it was the end of the world. They did not care about the judgment of God, nor did they believe that God's judgment was coming. And I believe in the end times, we will find the same thing. We'll have two witnesses in Jerusalem, clothed in sackcloth, declaring the truth of God's word. But the world will not care. I heard a a pretty sad statistic a couple of weeks ago concerning uh, this generation of youth, that only 10% of our youth here in the United States believe in the word of God, believe in in God, the word of God, 10%, 90% are being raised in a secular society that does not believe God nor the testimony of Jesus Christ. But the Lord gives witnesses, and that's what the Lord has called us to do, to be a witness in these last days. He calls these two witnesses his two olive trees, uh, the two lampstands. And this connects back to Zechariah 4, verses 11 through 14, where Zechariah is actually asking, he said, and I answered and said to him, what are these two olive trees? So he's asking this question. What are these two olive trees at the right hand of the lampstand and at its left? And I further answered and said to him, what are the two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two golden pipes from which the golden oil drains? In verse 14, He said, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. My two witnesses, the two anointed ones. Revelation 11, the two witnesses with calling them my olive trees, my uh, lampstands. It connects it to Isaiah chapter 4 where he talks about my two witnesses. Contextually in Zechariah chapter 4, it speaks about Zerubbabel, the governor, Joshua, the high priest. But here we find it's referring to a specific two witnesses that God is sending to give testimony. 
for 42 months, for three and a half years, they will declare the truth of God's word. And there will be those who will hate the declaration of God's truth. They will attack them. They will try to kill them. But they will not be able to overpower them. Initially, they will not be able to overpower them. Because not only will they have the testimony of God's word, but they'll have the power of the Holy Spirit working through them in order that if someone wants to harm them, fire will proceed from their mouths. This sounds crazy, but devour their enemies. By this, it says, those who want to harm them must be killed. They'll have power to shut the heavens, that no rain falls upon the earth, to turn water into blood, to strike the earth with all kinds of plagues as often as they desire. Does any of this sound familiar to you? As students of the Old Testament, we know of at least two prophets of Elijah and Moses who had similar things take place in their ministries. When Elijah had an arrest warrant out on his life and 50 soldiers came to arrest him, it tells us that fire came down from heaven and consumed the 50. So the king sent out 50 more and fire came down from heaven to consume the 50, 100 men burned up. And then the king sent out 50 more. And the captain over this 50, he was a bit smarter. He talked kindly to Elijah. He asked them, he said, I'm only doing my job. Could you please come with us? And the Lord said to Elijah to go. And they were not consumed by fire. But we find an example of it with Elijah. Also, Elijah prayed, and for three and a half years, it did not rain, according to 1 Kings 17.1. And in James 5.17.18, it tells us that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years, six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. For three and a half years fits perfect with the 42 months that we find here in Revelation chapter 11. And then having the power to turn water into blood, to have all kinds of plagues come upon the earth, well, we can attach this to the ministry of Moses when he went to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. This has caused many to believe that the two witnesses are going to be Elijah and are going to be Moses. We find that Moses and Elijah appeared to the Lord at his transfiguration in Matthew 17, 3 and 4. Matthew writes, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him, talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. We do find that at Jesus' first coming, that Moses and Elijah appeared before Jesus, to talk with Jesus, but also Peter, James, and John witnessing there the Lord being transformed on that mountain. Others have suggested that it will be Enoch and Elijah. There's a unique thing about two men in the Old Testament. There are only two men in the Old Testament that the Bible tells us that they never tasted death, that the Lord took them into heaven's glory apart from death. 
According to Hebrews, it tells us it is appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. It is appointed for man to die, and that has been the way of all men who have been birthed on this earth except for two. And many kind of connect Enoch. He walked with God, and he was not because the Lord God took him. Elijah, who took, the Lord took Elijah up in that uh, fiery chariot into heaven's glory, that they will eventually taste death when they are killed, as we will discover as we continue to read here. So many related to Enoch and Elijah that it is appointed for men to die once, that they need to die, that the Lord sends them back to be a witness that they will die. We do know this. Of the two witnesses, Mark 9, verses 12 and 13, Jesus speaking, he says, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man, that he may suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it was written of him. So Jesus said, Elijah is coming first. Talking about the future, Elijah is coming. But then he also says, I tell you, he's already come. And he's referring to John the Baptist there, that he has come and they did whatever they wished to him. The promise, the very last two verses of the Old Testament tells us this. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to the father, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So the promise of the Old Testament, Elijah is coming. The promise of the New Testament through Jesus Christ, Elijah will come. We can possibly say with surety that one of the two witnesses will be Elijah. Will it be Moses? Will it be Enoch? Others believe maybe John the Baptist? They will come, they will cause a time of trouble. Water turned to blood, the heavens shut that they may not rain. Plagues coming upon this earth. Can you imagine the facts checkers in that day? The field day that they will have. You have the Christian out there on social media saying, this is what prophecy, and they'll be believers then, people coming to faith. And here's the thing. God will not only send two witnesses. We've already read about the 144,000 of the nation of Israel that will be sealed and go forth as witnesses. The 144,000 will be witnessing. We'll learn in chapter 14 that an angel will be proclaiming the gospel of peace, the everlasting gospel from heaven's glory. We have the two witnesses who will testify for three and a half years. But it's not that God is unjust. He will send and he does have his witnesses to this day. Many people view God as being unfair. God is being unjust because he brings judgment upon this earth. But it's not that God is unjust. He sends his witnesses forth. And even when man can't do it, as we'll read about in Revelation chapter 14, an angel will proclaim the truth of the gospel. And the Bible tells us in 2 Peter 3.9, that the Lord is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 
God is not unjust. He is a just God and He will one day bring judgment to this earth. But right now, He is showing His forbearance, His long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's grace is made evident by ascending many witnesses, not just two. But He does have His two witnesses that He will send in the last days. We read about the death of the two witnesses. We begin in verses 7 and 8. It says, And when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. First of all, notice when they finish their testimony. When they finished their testimony, God has a specific work for these two witnesses to accomplish. When they accomplish that work, then he allows them to be put to death in the city of Jerusalem. But it's not even called here the city of Jerusalem. It's called Sodom and Egypt. We'll get to that in a moment. Likewise, Jesus had a specific work to do. He himself said, it is finished. In fact, he said in John 17:4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work that you have given me to do. And then he cried out there on the cross in John 19:13, to Telestai, it is finished. Paul also understood this. He had this mindset in Acts 20, verse 24, when they were warning Paul not to go to Jerusalem Prophets were coming and saying that only chains and death await you there. Paul's response to this in Acts 20, 24, he says, None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul said, none of these things move me. I want to finish my race with joy. Later on in his last letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy, Paul would write to Timothy and say, I have finished my race. When they had finished their work, God allowed them to be put to death. I believe that God has given each of us work to do in this life. And it's not that we are to go about as invincible. We're to have wisdom. As we go forth, we're not to walk about as if nothing can harm us until our testimony is done. That could be true for some. It will be true for the two witnesses here. But it should be that we should seek to accomplish the work that the Lord has called us to do. I have a friend of mine who I saw posted on Facebook today that um, his job, he works for ComEd, and his job normally has him working like every third or fourth week. But he said, they have me working on the weekends so much right now that it's been a month and a half since I've been in church. But he said, today I'm going to go to my church. I'm going to go do my ministry that the Lord has called me to do. He said, not everyone can be a minister that is on Sunday morning behind a pulpit proclaiming the word of God. But the Lord has called us each to do a work. 
And he said, he said, my church will be the lunchroom when I meet with the guys, when he talks about Jesus. I'm not sure if he's going to have a church service there, but I do know that he will be a light and a testimony to those whom he works with. I believe that God has a work for us to do and that we should seek to accomplish his call upon our lives. So at the end of their work, the beast from the bottomless pit will rise up to make war against the two witnesses. He will overcome them. He will kill them. Who is this beast? We learn about the beast in Revelation chapter 17, verse 8. That's why it's good to read the whole counsel of God to tie scripture together. Where in Revelation 17, 8, it says, The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit to go to perdition. We'll get to that, but this is the Antichrist. Notice how he's described. He was, he is not, and he will ascend. But he never accomplishes. He's an Antichrist. He's against Christ. He's the opposite of Christ. He who was and is and is to come. As we'll read those very words at the end of this teaching. The beast, the Antichrist, who was and is not and will ascend out of the abominable pit, it speaks of Satan's eternal nature. He will one day be put into judgment for all eternity. So that's when I say eternal nature in the sense of once he was created, there is eternity. He wasn't like God who was. In the beginning was God. He's not like that. God created. He's created being and work of God. But he has this sense that he will go on even in judgment throughout all eternity. One day he'll be cast into the lake of fire at the end of days. But this counterfeit comes out of the bottomless pit for one last attempt against God and his people. They call the city the spiritual Sodom in Egypt. We know that the city of Jerusalem is being talked about here. This is Jerusalem, and they are called spiritually Sodom and Egypt. In the Bible, the city of Sodom was a city that sinned against God in many ways, and God destroyed them. He set them forth as a perpetual example. Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50 tells us of Sodom. He says, look, the iniquity of your sister Sodom, she and her daughter, speaking of Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah, she and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, abundance of idleness. I have to tell you that that abundance of idleness keeps speaking to me these, the times we find ourselves in. I think a lot of the trouble we see in our nation right now is that people just, they have too much time in their hands. Many people just don't want to work. And uh, I got to tell you that when I was a brick mason and I would do uh, eight or ten hours a day laying brick and then driving to get there, spending an hour there and an hour home, there wasn't much energy left in this body. By the time I got through that long day, I was ready to uh, call it a day and do whatever was necessary for me. I would actually go to work early and normally when our kids were growing up, I would come home before Lily got home and she had a doctor she worked for that when he was finished they were finished so I would just like what time you think you'll be home and I I would have dinner ready quite often 
during family camp, somebody asked me, it's like, are you a cook? And it's like, no, but I cook a lot. And uh, that's how I learned to cook. I was cooking for the family, but I tell you, when the day was over, I was done. And uh, go to bed and get up and do it all over again. There wasn't a lot of idleness of time. And for me, for 10 years, I played in a Christian band. So the spare time I had, I was doing music and I was uh, trying to do ministry in that fashion. But I think the United States, I think we have pride. We have fullness of food compared to a lot of the other nations of the world. We fall right into this category. We do have abundance of time. And for many, the next thing it says, neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor, the needy. They were haughty. They committed abomination before me. And therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. I think if we didn't know that Ezekiel was actually talking about Sodom and her sister Gomorrah, we could read the United States right into these words. Fits perfectly but also fits perfectly for Jerusalem in the last days. As for Egypt, in biblical typology, Egypt always stands for the world. So when we talk about Egypt in the Bible, it stands as a picture of the world, the way of the world, uh, going against God. When Israel went down to Egypt, they got the world in them, and the Bible tells us they never completely got it out. Ezekiel 23, verse 8, it says, She has never given up her harlotry brought from Egypt. Talking about Israel. She has never given it up. She brought this harlotry from Egypt. For in her youth, they had laid with her, pressed her virgin bosom, and poured out their immorality upon her. And Ezekiel, writing about Israel, saying, That bit of the world that got into Israel while they were in Egypt, it never completely got out of her. And sadly, Israel, with all its great history as the children of God, largely today, Israel, today that we know in the nation of Israel, they're largely a secular nation that does not believe in God. I did a funeral last fall in November, and uh, it was a combined funeral with the He wasn't a Jewish rabbi. Right now I can't remember what they call him. It may come to me. But he served as the minister in place of a Jewish rabbi. And then I I did a portion of it. And I'm only telling you this because at the end of his message that he gave, and I think he did a tremendous job, Uh, For this funeral, he really understood the person. He talked about the life that this individual lived, really ministered to the uh, people. I think he did a tremendous job, except at the very end, he says these words. He set me up for a great message, but this is what he said. He said, we're going to get through this somehow. I don't know how, but we'll get through it somehow. He's called a cantor. I came up and I I began. And at the time, I had had shoulder surgery. I was in a sling. I was kind of having a hard time. It was outdoors. It was windy. It was tough. But he set me up, and I I started by saying this. Cantor Stevens said this. We're going to get through this somehow. I don't know how, but we'll get through it somehow. Now I want to share with you 
how we can get through this. And I preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I did most of it from the Old Testament because I knew I had a Jewish audience. So I didn't want to totally turn them away. And while I was doing that, I noticed that Kenner Stevens was back there taking notes. And he even came up before he left and he said, that was great. Because I taught a people that worship is so important. But you need to know who you're worshiping. We live in a world that people are worshiping society, worshiping science, right? It seems like the God of science is the God that many are worshiping in our nation today. But there is only one to whom we should bow a knee, and his name is Jesus Christ. Romans 11.25 tells us, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. So Israel is very secular to this day, but this is all going out according to the plan of God. For three and a half days, there is this unholy party that takes place in verses 9 and 10. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, nations, will see the dead bodies three and a half days and will not allow their dead bodies to be put in the graves. And all those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. During the 20th century, we kind of got a glimpse of how all the earth could see uh, from every peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations, as described here in our text, how all the earth could see. They could see it through photographs, through uh, TV, through movie clips. But here in the 21st century, it's not hard for us to understand how all the earth could see their dead bodies laying in the street of Jerusalem for three and a half days. How all the earth could party like it's Christmas time, rejoicing, making merry, giving gifts because the tormentors of the earth were slain. Again, it's one of the reasons I believe that we're looking at a future event because the things that John described it makes sense, and it's going to keep making sense as we go through uh, the remainder of Revelation and we get into the mark of the beast and all these things. It makes sense here in the 21st century. Jeremiah 25:33 tells us, And at that day the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth, and they shall not lament or be gathered to be buried they shall become refuge on the ground. And they just allowed their bodies to lay there. But then when the three and a half days were over, verses 11 through 14, it tells us that the breath of life from God entered them. They stood on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here, the rapture. I'm not saying that this is the time of the rapture. I'm just saying for these two witnesses, they're going to be raptured, caught up into heaven. They're going to hear a voice of heaven saying, come up here. And they ascended into heaven in a cloud. And their enemies saw them. The same hour, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed. And the rest were afraid. They gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, 
the third woe is coming quickly. For three and a half days, I can just picture cameras locked in on the two witnesses, kind of like watching uh, today. They, they've had these like eagle cams. You can watch an eagle give birth to her. I've never sat there for hours watching the eagle uh, take care of her young. But again, idleness of time. People have time to do that stuff. I've never had that kind of time. But we can see that they'll have the, uh, the two witnesses cam taking place for three and a half days. They'll just be watching the dead bodies corrupting their laying in the street. But then the breath of God breathes life into those bodies. Can you imagine watching them stand up? I don't want you to imagine. I don't want you to be there. But just think about the world who is there at that time, watching the bodies stand and rise to their feet, hearing the voice from heaven saying, come up here, watching the two witnesses ascend into heaven in a cloud. At that same hour, an earthquake coming to shake the city of Jerusalem, where 7,000 people will die. A tenth of the city will be destroyed. And those who are living at that time, they will give glory to God. They will fear the Lord. They will give glory to God. While the two witnesses are being physically resurrected, right now, the resurrected life of Jesus Christ can course through our veins. Realize that Jesus desires to breathe the breath of life into each one of us. After he died upon the cross, he rose from the grave. He came to his disciples on that night. The scripture tells us that he breathed upon them and said, receive you the Holy Spirit. The breath of life that comes from God that gives us physical life also gives us spiritual life. He desires to do that for us to this very day. Romans 8, 9 tells us, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Second Corinthians 5:17. I tell you, I love this verse, always have. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. If anyone is in Christ, those old things, the stuff that has pulled us down in the past, we have become new creations in Jesus Christ. All things are new. After these things took place, the judgment of the sixth trumpet came to a completion. The second woe was fulfilled. But discover that the two witnesses, they had fulfilled their ministry just as we should also. Don't forget that. I believe that the Lord has given us work to do. It may be an odd way of discovering that work. I honestly believed at one point when I was in my early 20s that I was going to be a Christian musician that, you know, played the big stages, and that never happened for us. We had record companies looking at our band, and um, it just never went to that place. But I, in hindsight, I look back at those 10 years that I spent doing Christian music, and I realized that the Lord was shaping me not to be a musician, although I can play. He was shaping me to be more of a teacher of God's word and a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I found my voice in the proclamation of the gospel when I was 
in the band days, introducing songs and sharing about Christ. He was beginning those early, the forming of that ministry of what I would eventually become. Just know that we have a work that the Lord has called us to do, and we should be striving to fulfill those things, trusting the Lord will see it done. I tell you what, I'm going to call it right here. And next week we'll look at the seventh trumpet and get into chapter 12. Maybe not all the way into chapter 12, but I think we've had an, we've gone through enough for the day. So put a check mark in your Bible. <laughs> Date it. I'll do that for my notes. We'll pick up on the seventh trumpet next Sunday, Lord willing. So we've learned today, just looking back over the notes, there's going to be a third temple. John was told to measure it. He's got his measuring rod, his nine-foot rod that he goes about measuring. Measuring the dimensions of the temple, the temple proper and the court of the priests, the court of the uh, men, but the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, he said, this will be given over to the Gentiles for 42 months. So it has been theorized, and we'll get into this, but it's been theorized that there will be the permission for the Jews to build their temple, but there'll be a dividing wall between the Gentiles, perhaps it'll be the Dome of the Rock will be on one side and the Temple of the Jews will be on the other and there'll be access to both places, but a wall dividing the two. But for three and a half years, two witnesses will give testimony and they'll not only not only present the word of God, but they'll have power through the miracles, the signs, the wonders that will take place. It will be undeniable, but the world will hate them. And sometimes that's how it is with the testimony of Jesus Christ. We share with people the truth of God's word, and they actually hate us because of our faith that we have in Christ. I had a family member once tell me, that he goes, I always thought you were a jerk. Why did he think I was a jerk? Because I follow Christ. I try to walk in the way of Christ. He had no other way or other reason to think of me in that way. Other than that, I believed in Jesus, and he did not. But it didn't cause me to change. In fact, I've even gotten a little more stubborn with it in my older years. I believe the Lord has given us a work to do. One day, our work will be done and he'll call us home. Until that day, I believe we should be occupied in trying to fulfill that work, whatever that work might be. And sometimes it may take some discovering. Sometimes it could be that you'll be involved in a ministry for, like I was for 10 years, playing Christian music, but that wasn't the ultimate thing that the Lord would have me to do. But he used those 10 years... Here's the thing, and I shared this with the youth several months ago, and I think it's so important. Those 10 years that I was with the band, and there's a number of people came through that ministry, but there was a core of us who remained. And I, I view those years as the Lord giving me a band of brothers and sisters 
we were all around the same age, within 10 years of each other. I think the oldest was 10 years older than me. But we were a band of brothers and sisters who had a common purpose and cause. We grew together in the body of Christ. The Lord has since that time spread us out across the United States. But every one of that core group is still walking with Jesus. For a time, we were a band of brothers and sisters who gained strength with one another. And I would just encourage you to find that band of brothers and sisters, no matter your age. If there's only 10% of youth today believing in God, then seek out that 10% youth and attach yourself to one another, that you can strengthen one another because the battle is great before us. If it's a bunch of old-timers about ready to get those walkers out, then get them up and give glory to Jesus. But in the process of learning, finding that group, he develops us, and perhaps we separate and we go different courses. But we have a work that the Lord called us to do, and I believe that we should do that work. You know, to this day, God's grace is evident in this world that he sends forth many witnesses to testify of his son. But one day, that testimony will come to a close. Until that day, there's opportunity for people to be saved. Let's go ahead and stand together. Here at Calvary Chapel of Lake Villa, we have a church motto of believe, receive, grow, and go. And uh, it's a process that I actually began working on this church. When I was in the school of ministry, I had to come up with church format. I actually added, I had a three-part thing back in the school of ministry when I was 31 or 32 years old. Um, And so I've held this with me for some 30 years. I'm 61 now. But I added a step in this process. And... uh, It is the necessity, this very first point, of believing. See, I've discovered in our country today that there are so many who do not believe that there is a God. And there's a lot of reasons why. But in order for someone to come to faith in Jesus Christ, the first step, you have to believe that God exists. So we say together, Hebrews 11.6, But without faith it is impossible to please him, For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews 11.6. So sometimes we have to just begin by teaching people that there is a God. Once they come to that place of knowing that God exists, then we need to introduce them to his son, Jesus Christ. We say together, Romans 5-7 Much more those who received abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ Romans 5-17 Not only introducing them to Jesus but the necessity of receiving believe in God receive Jesus as your Savior confessing your sins, the process of salvation. Once saved, we need to grow in our faith. And we say together, 2 Peter 3.18, But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Second Peter 3.18. And we need to go. We've got to share our faith with others. Matthew, we say together, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. Amen. Believe, receive, grow, and go. If you're listening today on our radio station, if you're watching through social media, you have questions regarding faith, please email us at cclv at comcast.net, cclv at comcast.net. You can also uh, find out information about our church at cclv.org, cclv.org. And just make mention that wlgsradio.com, our radio station streams, uh, 24-7 there at WLGSradio.com. One thing we have not yet figured out how to do is to be able to stream our live messages on Sunday morning. We'll figure it out, but we haven't figured it out yet. So um, during our Sunday morning worship, if you're listening online, you're going to get worship music and not the teaching. This coming Wednesday, we have uh, Genesis 25 and 26. I wrote a poem connected to Genesis 26. So the title of the poem is Dig Deep. You won't get to hear the poem until Wednesday night. Uh, I titled the message, though, Digging Deep, Genesis 25 and 26. Father, we thank you for this day you've given us to worship together. We pray for our brothers and sisters, Lord, who right now, Lord, they need your healing touch. And, Lord, as we prayed at the beginning of the service, we ask, Lord, for those who are physically suffering, like the centurion soldier who said, Lord, you don't have to come. Just send, say the word, and they will be healed. We ask, Lord, say the word that they might be healed. It is our desire, Lord. Our hearts are breaking for our brothers and sisters. Right now, we pray for their healing. We also, Lord, pray for those who need spiritual healing, those who don't know you as Savior. Lord, I pray that they would come to that place where they believe and receive. And for those of us, Lord, who know you as Savior, help us, Lord, to grow, to discover that ministry that you've called us to do, and to be willing to go forth, to be witnesses for you. In the day and age that you've called us to, we pray in the name of Jesus. We're going to close out in one last song as soon as I get over to my guitar.